0: Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. That's a uh, that's a clip from Remember the Titans, and it's probably, probably one of the greatest football movies of all time. Um, you're certainly allowed to disagree with me, but you're also allowed to be wrong. And so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, if you haven't seen it, then go watch it immediately because, uh, well, this afternoon, wait till we're done And then wait till you've eaten pancakes for lunch and then watch it this afternoon I'm sure it's streaming somewhere uh, It tells a story of an unconventional football team that works to, to overcome the challenges of being newly racially integrated In spite of all the differences, they manage to fight to work their way into becoming champions And, and that clip, uh, that's the moment in the movie where it clicks where black and white doesn't matter, where they're, fighting on the same, where they're playing on the same team with the same goal in mind. You had a white kid that wouldn't block for a black kid, and he gets called out for it. And, of course, the, the film paints this picture of, of the racial challenges of that era. But, but really, the, the movie functions as kind of a parable for any kind of group or, or team that has to overcome inherent challenges to develop unity. Uh, you know, the church is, is very much the same way. Uh, in this group, even this morning, you look around and there's all kinds of different people. I mean, we could we could break ourselves up in all kinds of different ways. You got retired people and working people. You got people in school. You got people who are out of school. You got people who make lots of money, people who don't make a lot of money. You got people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Our families look different. We got a lot of kids or no kids. I mean, all kinds of different ways that that we are, are different. But when you look around the room, God has seen fit to allow this this group to to function to function as a team But perhaps an even greater image is that he's allowed this group that we call the church to function as a family now every team faces challenges every team faces hardship sometimes We overcome those challenges we get to the other side and we're pleased with how we handled those particular challenges Sometimes we get through those challenges we get to the we get to the other side and you know Maybe we're not terribly thrilled about how we we handled it This morning we are in acts chapter 21 again And we find that the pressure on paul is is getting turned up even more last week We talked about the pressure that paul was under by those that loved him They they were concerned for his well-being They were concerned that as he went to jerusalem that he was going to face real hardships today as we continue in this chapter the pressure gets turned up even more, but, but not by people who were necessarily fans of the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, we read here where, where Paul gets into a situation where, honestly, a lot of people throughout history have criticized him for the way that he, he handled it. And so as we work through this text today, you might find even that you're critical of how Paul handles the situation that he's in. But for now, let's just turn our attention to the text and see what it has to teach us. In Acts chapter 21... I'll begin reading this morning in, chapter, in verse 17 of Acts chapter 21. I would invite, if you're able, would you stand with me as I read these words from Acts chapter 21. We'll read nine or ten verses here, beginning in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, They glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that that you have come do therefore what we tell you We have four men who are under a vow take these men Purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you But that you yourself also live in observance of the law but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. Well, then Paul took the in, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and they went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you for text in Scripture that... That are challenging, that cause us to ask questions and dig deeper. Father, I thank you when we run across these passages that even call us to really question about whether these characters did the right thing or the wrong thing. Father, most of all, I pray that as we pick apart these words and, and seek to apply them, that God, you will help us to be the church that we need to be, uh, Lord, that will be united in all things that, uh, that matter. Now bless us now as we spend these time, this time in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. So Paul has finally made it to Jerusalem, and you've read ahead. You know how this story actually ends. He's been working his way there for, for a length of time. And it's been an exhausting journey physically. You know it's been exhausting emotionally. And the first place that he stops is is in the church in Jerusalem. He goes to James's, uh, James's place there, and James is the brother of Jesus. So this is, uh, you know, this is not James the apostle. This is James. He was literally Jesus' half-brother. And you probably couldn't have had a better leader for the church there in Jerusalem. It's believed that James presided over a group of 70 elders, which they actually patterned after the Jewish ruling council there. And history tells us that James was famous for his piety He was described by one early church father as somebody whose knees were like the knees of a camel And I looked at my knees and I thought I wonder what it looked like if I had camel knees And so I then realized that I never really examined the knees of a camel all that closely And so the comparison was lost on me But he said that he had knees like a camel because he spent so much time in prayer And so maybe if you're a prayer warrior look down you might have camel knees you just don't know it yet this encounter that paul and james has here i read this it almost has kind of a godfather vibe to it you know it's not that they're sitting down over coffee talking about ministry and and rejoicing in what the lord's done and an iron sharpening iron type of thing that's not how this this comes across this comes across that that paul is in the chamber with these 70 elders and with james there in the in the center I almost picture like a throne in the middle that james is seated on i don't know why and Paul comes in with his companions and and it's almost you almost like imagine like You know bishop james or whatever his title was at the time, you know permission to speak sir I mean, that's that that's the vibe that that this carries with it And you get the impression That as you read this that james isn't altogether thrilled with what he's hearing You know, paul's excited I mean, I've been on those those mission trips before where you've you've seen God do great things, and you come back to the church to talk about the things that God did, and the church is like, yeah, we weren't there. Uh, Yeah, those are pictures, but those pictures really don't help us experience what you experience. I mean, we've been there before. And so Paul is thrilled. Like, you won't believe what happened. You won't believe the stories that, that I've got to tell. Paul is ecstatic to be able to share all that God had done in ministry. He says, James, I... I was able to stand in the Areopagus in Athens and defend the gospel, and I imagine James was probably underwhelmed. He says, man, and then then there's this kid named Eutychus. (laughs) He got bored with me preaching. I preached too long, and he fell out of the window and died when he hit the sidewalk, and I went down and laid hands on him, and he rose again. James, can you believe he rose again? And I preach the rest of the night. And, and so Paul tells these stories of what God has done through his ministry and goes on and on and on. And I imagine that James is sitting there, arms crossed, underwhelmed, because he knows that there's trouble brewing. Luke doesn't mention it, but at some time, at some point in this interaction, Paul even manages to produce a large sum of money. Because if you recall, over the course of this time, Paul has been taking up an offering. He's been collecting an offering that he was going to bring back to Jerusalem to to give to the church at Jerusalem because the church at Jerusalem was struggling under a famine. And so at some point in time, Paul produces this large sum of money that the Gentile churches had actually collected for the mother church there in Jerusalem. Verse 20 even tells us that the church leaders in Jerusalem heard it and they saw the offering probably that had been collected and were told that they glorified God. But before you get too carried away, right? I mean, that, this sounds exciting. They glorified God. But the last part of verse 20 suggests that there may be some trouble brewing here. Because Acts chapter 21 verse 20 says, You see, brothers, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? And then pay attention to this next sentence. They are all zealous for the law that matters. If you're an underliner, this is one of those ver- this is one of those parts you need to underline right there. They're all zealous for the law. Verse 21. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. This is what are we to do then? They will certainly hear that you have come. Now, this is important. This is not Man, Paul is here. We are so excited. The apostle Paul is in town. We get to hear from Paul. In other words, James looks at Paul and says, Paul, this is all great. But not everybody's real excited to see you here, Paul. In Baptist circles, we call this the cold water committee. The cold water committee is what happens is when there's a, there's a great idea that's brewing and people are excited about what's, what's brewing, and then invariably there is the cold water committee. I am often the chairman of that committee. My staff will tell you that, 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 um, that I'm often the, the guy who is the, who's the chairman of the cold water committee because somebody will come with a great idea, and I'll say, yeah, but... But there's no money but there's no people but there's no this there's no that there's no that And so just give me a big old home or home depot bucket full of cold water and uh, and 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 that is my spiritual gift the key phrase here They are all zealous for the law One commentator said it this way these jews that james is alluding to they believe this that we're saved by grace But we are kept saved by the law In other words, yes, Jesus is the Savior, but there's some things that we got to do along the way to make sure that we stay in in the good graces of, of God. And so we keep the law. We follow the Jewish tradition. We do all of these things in order to make sure that we stay saved. You see, the mother church in Jerusalem, she took on a very different characteristic of the Gentile churches in Europe. And that mother church filled with all these Jewish believers who were rigorous in keeping the law There was a particular suspicion when it came to these gentile believers And there's no small number of these folks there in the church and it turns out that paul Well, it turns out he had a reputation James said they have been told about you And they will certainly hear That you have come this is an intimidating moment. This is that Godfather feeling right here. Like, like Paul, you may want to turn tail and get out of town. Uh, they know you're here. They've heard stories about you. They've been talking about you. They know who you are and what you're about and what your teaching is like. And so now we have this conflict that has been set up. Here's the mother church and the way that they've been running, and and it's filled with these Jewish believers that feel you have to keep the law. And then you've got Paul who's over here saying, no, we've been free from the law. The law tells us how sinful we are, but we've been free from the burden of the law. And all these people are saying, no, you've got to keep the law. And Paul says, no, you don't have to, to be obedient to all of those ceremonial Old Testament requirements. And all this conflict flies in the face of the Lord's Prayer. Not the Our Father who art in heaven, but the Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Just consider Jesus' prayer here. He's looking to the church and saying that they may be one. Well, here's Paul, the, the the founder of these Gentile churches, who's trying to help Gentiles be incorporated into the kingdom. And here's James in this Jewish church that's really not fond of these Gentile believers. And Jesus looks at it and says, yeah, but I want you guys to be to be one. You're coming from two very different backgrounds, but we want you to be one. Here, it's interesting. We find ourselves today in the midst of what would literally seem like countless denominations and factions in the church how many denominations are there i don't know it probably will change today uh you know the number of different i mean uh, for crying out loud we're baptists we're southern baptist church and we don't even get along with all the baptists and so i mean that's how that's how much diversity there is within the church today in acts 21 you've got these just two primary factions the gentiles and the jews And it's very clear that that Paul is committed to seeing this one church united together, but getting to that place of unity is going to be a challenge. Sadly, I, I don't see that there's any way to undo the fractured nature of the kingdom of God today. But I do think there's some principles we can glean from the events of Acts chapter 21 to help us preserve unity in the church today, even if it's simply within our own body our own community. So how do we go about preserving that unity that Jesus prayed for, that Paul obviously is trying to reach? How do we go about preserving that unity today? I think the first thing we need to do is we need to hate gossip. We need to hate gossip. Remember again, what did James say about Paul? They've been told about you. It's not that Paul was there, that he had written all these books that, that defined who he was. They, that wasn't the case. They've been told about you. And this is what they've been told about you, that he's telling people to abandon Moses and, and all the Jewish customs. And, and James is looking at Paul, and he's saying this. Are you ready? Paul, people here think you're a liberal that's an insult, right? He's the first century equivalent of being woke. Abandon Moses. Abandon the law. Abandon all of that. They're talking about him. Now, we know that's not true. Part of Paul's ministry has been to define what relationship Gentiles have with the Jews in the grand scheme of the gospel because it, it, it is a complicated matter to, to, to come to conclusions about. And so Paul's conclusion differed from the conclusion of a lot of the Jews. The Jews came to the conclusion that in order to become a Christian, you had to first become Jewish. And Paul's conclusion was not that, that that, that's a works-based gospel, that you're not Jewish first in order to become a Christian. That's not how the gospel works. But that conclusion that Paul reaches was easily spun by his opponents. And the church of Jerusalem has heard all about it. Here comes that liberal preacher from Europe who's been telling people that they don't have to follow the law. Church, we truly need to hate gossip. A story was once told of a woman who repeated a little bit of gossip about a neighbor. Within a short time, the whole town knew the story. The slandered person was deeply hurt and most unhappy, as we all would be. But then the lady who was responsible for spreading the rumor learned that it was completely untrue. So she went to a wise old sage in the village there to find out what she could do to repair the damage. After listening to her problem, he said, "Go to the marketplace, purchase a chicken, have it killed, and then on your way home, pluck its feathers out one by one and drop them along the path." Though surprised by the advice, the woman did as she was told. The next day, she informed the man that she had done as he instructed and He said, Now go and collect all those feathers and bring them back to me. The lady followed the same path, but to her dismay, the wind had blown all the feathers away. The woman searched all day long, and she only returned with two or three feathers in hand. The sage looked at her and said, You see, it's easy to drop them, but it's impossible to bring them all back. Likewise, it does not take much to spread a false rumor, but you can never completely undo the wrong. You know, the idea of gossip is one of those things the Bible speaks unequivocally about. It's, it's not a question mark here. It's not one of these things, well, eh, is that okay? It's not okay. The Bible condemns it outright. Uh, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 20, it says, For the lack of wood, the fire goes out, but where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. Proverbs uses that term whisper to refer to the gossip. And just like wood fuels a fire, so gossip fuels the conflict. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 1, we find this, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Interestingly enough, James, the one that is meeting with Paul here, had things to say about it as well. In James chapter 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And then in James chapter 4, verse 11, do not speak evil against one another. Brothers, there's no question here. This isn't one of these. Is it okay? Is it not okay? When is it okay? It's never okay The the idea of spreading false things of spreading gossip even when you couch them in the terms of a prayer request I need you to pray for my neighbor I caught my neighbor sneaking out in the middle of the night. We need to pray for him That's not a prayer request. It's gossip and it's routinely condemned in scripture now Instead of withholding judgment against Paul until the church here could directly hear from him They were busy undercutting his ministry leveling these accusations Against him and here comes Paul back into town Isn't it so ironic. He comes into town with a massive offering That all these churches that were the ire of the jewish church that all these churches had collected in order to share now That's the idea of gossip, but I think we need to take the idea of hating gossip one step further, and this has become incredibly true for us today. We need to hate gossip especially when it fuels our own biases. All this talk about Paul was very scandalous for the Jerusalem church because they weren't fond of the Gentiles anyway, and so, why should we celebrate these Gentiles? We don't like them, and here comes liberal Paul after having been preaching to them and evangelizing them and sharing the gospel with them. We don't like them anyway. Paul gave a startling example of this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. He says, when Cephas came to Antioch, that's Peter, he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. What was going on? Peter showed up in the Gentile church, and man, these are believers. These these are fellow Christians, and so they they joined together. They broke bread together. They enjoyed fellowship with one another because they were fellow believers. They shared things in common because of the Holy Spirit living inside of them, and man, Peter kicked his shoes off, and he started acting like liberal old Paul until James sent emissaries, and then Peter said, "Uh uh-oh, let me correct my behavior. And so then he says, I don't know that I can go out to eat with you guys after church today. I don't know that I can do fellowship with, with you guys again because James's people are here. Right? And Paul looks at Peter and says, what a hypocrite you are. What a hypocrite you are. So Paul's gone woke. And that news spread like wildfire because it got right to the heart. Listen to me. Of the racial bias that was present in the church in Jerusalem, got right to the heart of it, because everybody heard it and said, "Oh, just proves what we knew." Just guarantee just, we already knew this. This week, I have confession to make. I made, I made a terrible mistake. you guys get nervous when the preacher starts to say this, right? I was like, "What do you do?" I got into an argument on social media. I know. I broke the cardinal rule of social media that I have encouraged you guys to follow. I have said publicly, hearts and minds are never changed in Facebook arguments. And the devil led me into the throes of one of these Facebook arguments that was fruitless and pointless. It wasted my time and got me flustered for no reason. I'm involved in a Southern Baptist pastors group on Facebook. It is an interesting community. I'll simply say that. And the other day, a pastor from Arkansas posted something, and he only told one side of the story. And it was very clear, a biased post, and it was very clear that what he posted supported his own bias. And I simply jumped in and said, you only told half the story. And I posted a link to an article that shared the rest of the story. Like a dumb fish in the lake, I took the bait, and I fell for it. And within minutes, well, this is all I can liken it to. When I was a kid, I remember being at my grandma's house, and I was walking around the yard barefoot, and there was a hole in the ground, and I, like a dummy, said, what happens if I stick my foot in this hole? And I stuck my foot in this hole, and guess what was living in that hole? Yellow jackets. And those yellow jackets were not happy that I stuck my foot in the hole. And so they swarmed me, and I began getting stung. And and I don't remember just how quickly I got out of my clothes, but I remember stripping clothes off because, buddy, they had found up shorts and everywhere, and so I was getting eaten alive by the Yellow Jackets. And that's what I felt like when I made that comment on Facebook. I made a final remark, and I withdrew myself from the conversation and asked the Lord to forgive me for my failures. Um, Can I say this? I don't think it's impossible, or I don't think it's possible to be unbiased about something you care about. Right? If you care about it, it's really hard to be unbiased if you care about something. And it's important that we recognize that, that, that if I care about it, that my bias is, is automatically geared towards it. We were talking the other day about times we'd had, we'd had jury duty. And I served on one jury... And I'm probably damning myself by making this announcement right now. I've served on one jury. I got to be the foreman of the jury, just so you can understand this. And I understand that when you get on a jury, you're supposed to be what? Unbiased, right? You want to hear the facts of the case. You want to hear the the defendant. You want to hear the plaintiff. You want to hear the facts of the case. And the jury that I served on was for a stinking speeding ticket. And when I say that it was a joke, it was a joke. It was an absolute waste of time and money. I went in and I thought, okay, I'll give this guy the benefit of the doubt. And 30 seconds into his opening remarks, rage started to build inside of me because I was at the courthouse for a speeding ticket trial. I wanted to pay a speeding ticket just so I could go. Let me out of here. But as the defendant made his case, I looked around the jury and all the people had the same expression on their faces. They were mad. This guy was wasting our time. He took two days from our lives that we can't get back. And our bias, that was colored by anger. We got into the deliberation room and it took 10 minutes and we were trying to figure out if the death penalty was an appropriate punishment for a speeding ticket. Listen, we all have biases, and our biases are informed by our faith, they're informed by our experience, they're informed by our education, they're informed by our politics. But we need the maturity to know what our biases are and when to check our own biases. And we especially need to be able to check our biases when it comes to the kingdom of God and unity in the church. You see, avoiding gossip is hard enough it's especially hard to avoid when we see it fueling our biases. It's easy to share that information when it really fuels our biases about things. So the solution that James and the elders offer is, well, it's one that's been controversial among commentators. The solution was for Paul His companions, just to show how faithful Jews they were, just how good they were at being Jewish, how good they were at keeping the Jewish traditions. Paul, everybody here thinks you're woke. The best way for you to not be woke is for you to keep this traditional Jewish law. And so Paul needed to go to the temple. He needed to satisfy purification requirements. He needed to make the sacrificial requirements for a Nazarite vow. He had to do some head shaving along the way. And so here's the, here's the Apostle Paul. Listen, Paul wrote things like Galatians chapter 3, verse 23-26. through 26. He says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. How can Paul... Uh, who was so often suggested that we are free from the obligation of the law, willingly submit himself to the law's demands again. Again, intelligent Bible scholars disagree on whether or not this was a sin for Paul, and so we'll withhold judgment because no one's really figured this out yet. But I think the principle he was applying was really quite simple. In order to preserve unity, Paul was willing to give up some of his liberty. In order to preserve the health and integrity of the church, he was willing to give up some of his own liberty. And I understand that this idea flies in the face of us as Americans, but I would encourage you to remember that you're a Christian first and an American second. Paul loved the church, right? He gave his life for it. Gave his life to grow it. Gave his life to develop it. Gave his life to teach it. He loved the church. He especially loved his people. Even if he didn't always agree with him. Listen to what Paul says about his relationship to the Jews in Romans chapter 9. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Listen to verse 3. For I wish, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying that I love these people, my my nation, my my kinsmen. I love them so much. This is profound. I would be willing to set aside my own salvation that they might come to know Christ. That's That's an intense thing to say, right? I mean, that's... Paul says, I'd be willing to be condemned to give up his own salvation if that would mean that his nation might be saved. And again, saying that out loud, it sounds alarming. But that's how much he loved his people. So in accordance with his conviction for his people, and even for his stated principle in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all To all people, that I might, that by all means, I might save some. Now, again, some people would look at this and say, that's theological compromise. Uh, How can can Paul, who's got these firm convictions, say, to a Jew, I'll be a Jew, to a Gentile, I'll be a Gentile? That's theological compromise. But I would argue that that's not theological compromise, that it's evangelistic compassion. He's not abandoning principles, he's simply looking around and seeing the lost. And within the, re, within the responsible, with a responsible compassion towards them, pointing them to Jesus. You see, there would be a time and a place for those debates to be had. Jewish or Gentile? What's the law? How does the law respond to Gentile? All those questions are, are legitimate questions. Should he take the vow or not take the vow? Should he go to the temple and pay the dues to the temple? He has to go to the Jewish temple and pay the priest, the same priest that would have been there to oversee Jesus' crucifixion. He has to go to that temple and pay a, 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 a penalty, in essence, to them. Also that he can... Point people back to Jesus. Again, plenty of place for debates, but there's no debating the fact that Paul has compassion for his people. Was he wrong? I don't know. Let's ask him one day. He's had plenty of time to think over it, right? What do you think about that decision, Paul? But at the very least, what Paul does is he gives us an honest look at what it looks like to strive for the kind of unity that Jesus actually prayed for. And in doing so, he's an example for each one of us. To hate gossip, especially if it's gossip that fuels our biases. And to be willing to look at those around us and to lay down some of our own liberties for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ and for the sake of the church, for the sake of the kingdom. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for leaders like Paul who certainly don't get it right all the time, and for 2,000 years people have been debating on whether this was right or wrong, and we certainly don't have an answer today. But we do pray, Father, that whether it was right or whether it was wrong, that we would learn from these words, that we would understand how toxic gossip can be in the church is It tarnished a man like Paul's reputation. But we also understand how great a, just what a great example Paul is of being willing to to make those sacrifices for the sake of his people, to be willing even, Lord, if if it were possible, to lay aside his own salvation that his nation might be saved. That kind of sacrifice is is mind-blowing to us. But Paul was willing to do it. And so, God, I pray that we will strive for unity. We look around our community, and we see churches on every corner. Some we agree with, some we don't. We know that it's not what Jesus prayed for. But at the very least, in our own churches, could we strive to get along? Could we strive to love one another? Could we strive to speak truth about and to one another? And to hate gossip, to especially hate it when it fuels our biases and to be willing to submit to one another out of love and out of reverence to Jesus. Father, if there's any here today that need to give their life to Christ, I pray that today they would recognize just what that means. Just as Paul was willing to lay us to, to be condemned for the sake of his people, it's not necessary. Jesus took the condemnation for us. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins that we might truly be saved. If there's any here today that have never Given their life to Jesus. And I pray that today would be a day that they would consider. So, Father, we pray that you move in our midst now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.